Hello, it's Pat, uh, the sales engineer, and I'm going to try something here. Um, folks say it's nice when you have uh, the reader, the, the videographer, videographer uh, live, or at least showing that things weren't recorded at one point and narrated at another. So uh, rather than have you stare at a blank screen you get to stare at my ugly mug and what i'm going to do here is introduce uh the first chapter well the first several chapters of a book i'm writing on sales engineering i haven't actually decided what it's going to be called the book it's a rather sizable piece it's very uh thorough and it's uh non-fiction and the first section so I'm opening up the, the software that I write it in is called the history and evolution of sales. Now, I really believe firmly that sales engineers need to understand everything about sales, maybe even more so than the people that they are serving and supporting the sales reps. This is, I believe, essential and, uh, this first section deals with just the history of sales, but I believe it's essential because you're going to be in front of many different kinds of personalities and styles of sales. You need to be ready for anything. And so I want to read you a bit of the first draft of uh, this first section. I'll see how far I can get. Uh, in my crappy t-shirt, no done up hair, nothing like that. My office here, which has all the books are actually on the sides. <laughs> what you can see back there isn't by any means all of them. And uh, all the keyboards and monitors and everything. So anyway, uh, a bit of a geek, as you can tell uh, from my profiles. So let me get started with this here. And I want to have a little bit of a disclaimer right up front. There are cases where I'm quoting or using cited material and there's a sexism or the, the he, mankind, salesman, he shall, instead of they shall, she shall, we shall, salesperson. Um, try not to read too much into that. I can edit all that out later on um, to painstakingly go through and change people's language but um sales engineering is uh, not refined or restricted or even benefiting from any type of sexual orientation at all it's uh it's all in your mind it's all about what you can tolerate what you can learn and how well you can get along with people that you otherwise might not get along <laughs> so Let's talk about the very, very first things that we deal with when it comes to uh, selling. And that's, of course, what selling is. Can you imagine having to create from scratch everything you need to live? If you want electricity, you need to create it. There are no outlets on the wall, no batteries. Would you like to wear clothes? You're free to make any kind you like. How about meat? there is no clothing store and you cannot even order online. What would that have been like? Can you imagine it? 
Well, before you buy something from someone, there was a time when there were no buyers, no sellers. No money was needed because currency in any form simply wasn't needed. You were roving, self-sufficient, and sometimes teaming up with others to make hunting for your next meal more likely to succeed before you died of hunger. If someone asked you to barter or trade, the concept would be foreign to you. If they want to trade a fur for a piece of obsidian, the person with the obsidian would wonder why you had too many furs and what they would do if they gave you their only knife. This was the age before bartering and long before sales. The only people you learned from were your parents or a communal group. But with lifespan so short, you had to learn fast. Just having no internet must have been a struggle. Eventually, people are believed to have settled down in agrarian agrarian societies, making them more efficient at obtaining meals and thus allowing them to spend more time on things like religion and making better stuff. Until recently, it was thought that religious practices involving complex structures with large stones and other materials was the only it was only possible once people settled down. But findings in Turkey at Gobleki Tepe very recently have shown that assumption to be false. It is so old that it makes the hypogeum look like a drive through church. The point is that even though it is almost assuredly a center of worship, and at around 12,000 years old, the oldest man-made structure yet discovered, it shows no sign of being a center of society or city. There's just no garbage. So as little as 12,000 years ago, man was still wandering about chasing lunch. There were no excesses of commodity and bartering as explained meant that I had to take time and produce excess at a time when I couldn't find a surefire way to have dinner every night. It just wasn't practical. The entire world had anywhere from one to 10 million people after all. It is thought that the exchange of goods or organized bartering started around 6,000 BCE, before the Common Era, out of respect to my Hebrew friends, with the Phoenicians, who had observed this to a smaller extent in the surrounding tribes throughout their kingdom in Mesopotamia. This was a radical concept where a person would do more than just overproduce for personal consumption, but rather exchange excess for stuff needed now or before they could produce their own in time. The first trade routes were developed to transport salt and flint. Jericho, founded in 9000 BCE, was built on such a route. I always wondered why these routes were, weren't called barter routes. The thinking is that a trade route is unique in that at no point along the route are the goods exchanged. You go with what you have and come back with what you need. What you have and what you need determine the route and ultimately the destination. Agriculture is now a big deal. With the first sheep being herded in northern Iraq, or the Fertile Crescent, as we've heard about in school, domesticating of the pig in Turkey and China, and the five million people left on Earth are going back into Europe as that nasty ice age recedes. If bricks at Jericho were the high tech of the ninth millennium. By the eighth millennium BCE, pottery was all the rage. And it makes sense why. You could now carry over goods, even liquids, great distance. Excuse me. You could now carry other goods, even liquids, great distances to trade as well as the dry goods. 
In fact, things like salt and flint and later obsidian, first traded with, uh, from Anatolia, which is uh, today Turkey, to southwest Iran, were items traded most simply because they had a high value for their volume and weight. In other words, you could trade more for carrying less. You might be forgiven for thinking that in the 7th millennium BCE, every one of the 5 million earthlings are living in nice agricultural centers, or even cities, living the good life. But we've only been talking about a very small part of, of the world, and most everyone is still in hunter-gatherer tribes or bands roaming around. Pottery itself isn't yet widespread, so it was good to live in the Middle East back then. The cow has just been domesticated, and for the first time, gold and copper are made into ornamental jewelry. The Chinese, who will essentially invent transcontinental trade, have just domesticated rice, millet, and soybeans. Pottery, though, was a game changer. The earliest pottery had bottoms that were pointed and couldn't stand on their own. This was for the simple reason that the inverted cone shape uh, could easily be tied to uh, pack animals by using loops of rope at the bottom. Uh, kind of like a, like a coffee filter. You can put a rope on it and carry it. Uh, well, not a coffee filter and a rope, but... So, uh, this is a simple reason. Interestingly, Central America invented pottery at the same time with no communication or travel between the societies. With animal husbandry, or what's called pastoralism, well along, and the transport of seeds across vast distances to keep their grazing lands fertile, it was getting easier for populations to grow and excesses in vital staples to be stored for use or trade, or for use during trading. This is considered the age of the rise in agriculture, all because of the early versions of sales trade and bartering. The earliest beginnings of money are found in counting tokens in the Fertile Crescent, model, modern Iraq, uh, about now. And if you wanted wine, you were in luck because Persia was making it 8,000 years ago. In Africa, pottery was first being used decoratively along with a boon in jewelry, which are sure signs of a society with desired goods to trade. Trinkets. If you were the first or best other people want it and give you what you want for it. Egypt will play a key role in the development of sales. In the next thousand years of our abbreviated history, the area of North and Northern Africa is to become a desert, or at least it begins to. What I wrote was, in the next thousand years of our abbreviated history, the area of Northern Africa starts to become a desert. This actually takes a while. It is thought that this gradually forced the people of northern uh, Africa eastward into what would become Egypt as the Sahara Desert began to take shape, uh, the Nile Valley. These new arrivals to Egypt took full advantage of the Nile and pioneered advanced agricultural technology in 5500 BCE to take advantage of the seasonal flow of the river, thus bringing fertility year-round, or what we would call irrigation. But the biggest advance for our concerns was the virtually instantaneous creation of a modern civilization in Sumer in 5400 BCE by the Sumerians in what today is southern Iraq. They pioneered irrigation and many advances that will lead civilizations to a sales-oriented culture, starting with the technology of the day, irrigation. 
Agriculture has been the basis of economy and trade for thousands of years. So it is surprising that only in the 5th millennium BCE, we got around to inventing the wheel. Even the plow wasn't invented in Europe until 4500 BCE. And after a hard day using it, you could now have a beer. With the 4th millennium BCE, things really start to move fast. Sumer and Egypt were the most advanced societies, and advances still used today just kept coming from the Sumerians, among them the very first bit of writing, called proto-cuneiform, or pre-cuneiform. In pictographs, along with advanced creative writing, base 60 mathematics, astronomy, astrology, civil law, complex hydrology, schools, and even the sailboat, they even had time to create the first proper cities managed as such. During the period from 3000 to 2000 BCE, we had the early to mid middle Bronze Age, and all of a sudden, nobody was happy with what they had. Imperialism, or the desire to conquer, seemed a lot faster and easier than keeping up with the neighbors the old hard way. This theme is familiar to us today, but back then, your king would look around and see that a neighbor had developed a collection of wealth or a crippling military technology that he really wanted. In one fight, he could gain land, the possessions of others, and all the housing and technology. If you were fierce enough and had a reputation, the locals would just drop everything and run. The Hebrew Bible is filled with stories of just what this was like. But this was a double-edged sword, with the birth of revolution from within as a concept. Sadly, the highest technology of the time in Samaria fell victim to war between the city-states it was comprised of. And as it is today, war drains the will and wallets of the people. If you didn't profit from war, you could always go over to Egypt and see the Great Pyramids under construction, which included Khufus, which would be the tallest man-made object on the planet for thousands of years. Thankfully, the Sumerians saw that never-ending war was not helping, and the third dynasty of Ur, you are, uh, Ur, was ushered in by a unification of the warring city-states. They even had time to invent poetry and the telling of epics. And with writing, they had a way to jot it all down instead of trying to remember it all. If it weren't for the Amorites constantly nipping at their heels, Samaria might well still exist today. Now the development of trade and eventually sales by way of money or currency is speeding up. It's the second millennium BCE now, and Egypt has calmed down a bit along with the Amorite kings over in Babylon. And as you'd expect, when people stop fighting, they start thinking. Well, at least after the upheaval of the 1600s. We get chariots and a Phoenician alphabet, and there was a movement toward using writing for bureauc bureaucracy and international trade. In fact, the Phoenician traders were also so skilled at sailing that they spread their language and alphabet throughout the Mediterranean expanse. It was used virtually exclusive in the region, and as the first Canaanite language, it was the parent of many languages using alphabets. The Bronze Age gave way to the Iron Age with more invention, uh, excuse me, the, the Bronze Age gave way to the Iron Age with the invention of wagons, which could haul exponentially more goods than the equivalent of just horses and shipping routes for trade were forming, as it was far faster than overland. Two horses can only carry so much, but those same two horses could pull an extremely heavy wagon much easier and faster. I guess you could say the wagon ushered in the concept of time to market. 
along with all those sailboats. The first millennium BCE is still in the Iron Age, and it was the, the time of empires. Empires meant conquest and it meant trade. The father of monotheistic religion, Zoroastrianism, is spreading in and from Persia. The Greeks just made the first language with vowels, calling it Greek. We now get geometry, the concept of atoms, the first railway, large trade war vessels, lighthouses to keep them afloat, the crossbow and the siege engine. On the barter or trade side, we see by 500 BCE the Trans-Sahara trade routes out to Morocco. So now that big desert has uh, got some routes through it. In fact, in a way we can blame writing for having sails. Around 3500 BCE, the Sumerians advanced from pictographs to cuneiform in order to keep track of the quantities of goods moving through their kingdom. By 2500 BCE, there were already gold and silver standards as the basis for determining and stabilizing prices. Coins, though not widely used, appeared as early as the 6th century BCE in Iron Age Anatolia, the kingdom of Lydia at the time. They were initially made of select... Uh, oh, wow. My, I haven't really corrected any of the text in here, so I'm really kind of on the fly trying to figure out what this writing software did. They were initially made of... Oh, of electrum. <laughs> it split the words. It was initially made of electrum, an alloy of silver, gold, and copper. But again, it would be very long before widespread, much less consistently recognized coinage was used in any fashion. Paper was invented in China in 105 CE by Kai Lun, C-A-I Lun, ushering in the paycheck, eventually, and the first paper money and banknotes are issued in 670 CE. That technology would be given to the Arabs in the mid-8th century, and in 785 CE, China developed sea trade routes to the east coast of Africa, which cuts out the Arab middlemen. <laughs> this trend of spend a little up front, make a lot on the back end, is something we still profit from today. Muslim traders settle in Madagascar in the 9th century, while in 863 CE, the Chinese author Duan Chengxi writes about the Somalian slave, ivory, and the ambergris, a waxy, flammable substance coming from the festive tracts of sperm whales. Uh, it's actually supposed to be digestive tracts, not festive tracts. Oh, this software. In 1088 CE, we usher in the era of proposals with the invention of movable type in China. And with the printing press in 1439 CE in Germany, we can see mass mailings in our future. And with the invention of the proper newspaper in 1605, we can now advertise in style. Anders Celsius develops the centigrade scale for temperatures, and to this day, nobody knows why this was necessary. But we sped past a point in history that is of vital importance to our story, and that's the Renaissance. From the 1300s to the 1700s, it bridged the old and the new, the Middle Ages and modern history. At its routes, it was humanism, or the philosophy that man is the measure of all things. The positive influence and impact of specialized learning and widespread educational reform were balanced by the lack of basic knowledge in the family unit. This period was made all the more dramatic by being right after the Dark Ages. It is postured that the Black Death pandemic from the pathogen Yersinia pestis, 
which killed one third of the world's population from 1346 to 1353, was responsible for the attitude or outlook in people. For the first time, people were thinking about mortality as much as morality. If Florence was the actual center of the the actual center <laughs> century if florence was the actual center of the origin uh, of the renaissance it was likely because the city lost a full half of its population sociologically the plague spread to all levels of society but the poor were hit hardest due to the physical conditions the plague thrived in this left moderately more educated people than not this left moderately this left moderately more educated people than not. You could say that two different ways. After this, money and art were close friends, with wealthy patrons sponsoring large works of paint, construction, and sculpture. This money came from the increased trade with Asia and the rest of Europe, and from sources like silver mines in Tyrol and booty from the Crusades. Some even think that the money came from those that had the plague hit a little too close to home, and they saw extravagant religious works as an act of devotion, piety, or repentance. If you wanted textiles, you went to Florence. If you wanted fine glass, you went to Venice. And because ideas... Oh, excuse me, I had to uh, scroll up a little bit. But then as soon as I did, I lost my place. Oh my. Oh, if you wanted textiles, you went to Florence. If you want to find glass, and because ideas and news travel within goods traded, with goods traded, Venice naturally grew as uh, an educational center. And it is, and it is exactly this distance between those who knew and those who didn't that comes to us from the Renaissance. Prior to then, throughout the Dark Ages and before, your family knew all you needed to know to survive. Remedies and practices of hunting and farming were handed down to the next generation. And the only specialists were those with a specific basic skill, such as working metals and perhaps animal husbandry, that their family had those tools. But even then, they were within the same village or quite close by, like a, like a large extended family. All that changed when the Renaissance created centers of learning and advanced education in very specific areas was possible. Those with the money, connections, or even skills could travel beyond their small villages and live in large cities. Larger cities were more lucrative, as if only a small percentage of the population would buy your product or services. Well, a larger population within reach in a large city would make that small percentage lucrative. Collections of similarly skilled people formed associations and guilds to protect their income, ensure only those properly capable were bidding on the work, and wield power over going rates. And today, we see this in specialists in every vertical, from doctors to lawyers. Specialty is the way things are today, and we find ourselves camping in automated palaces, incapable of surviving without electricity and Wi-Fi. All right, well, that's at 23 minutes. That was the first uh, chapter. And I'll stop it there.